From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A red curtain of restrictions falls on more than a dozen counties today. Our health team answers your questions about where we are in the pandemic. Then, for restaurants, the roller coaster continues. In counties going red, dining rooms must close. We'll check in with the owner of a Greek restaurant in Fort Morgan, Danette Garlis, named Elaine's Place after her mom. And despite managing to keep the doors open this long, new restrictions and the loss of holiday parties may be too much. And for your stay-at-home Thanksgiving, a side dish courtesy of ranchers in Montrose, a cranberry fluff salad. It is not too sweet. Oh, good. You know, I like the flavor of the orange in it. It always goes well with cranberries. Our series, The Kitchen Shelf. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their every day. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At least 15 counties enter the red phase today in the fight against COVID-19. Another handful will move to the more restrictive status Sunday. That's as more than a third of hospitals in Colorado anticipate staff shortages in just the next week. Meanwhile, Thanksgiving is a week away, and it's possible some people won't be deterred from gathering. It all feels relentless. So let's slow things down. Let's improve our understanding of this moment. CPR's John Daly and Andrea Dukakis are with us. They're on our coronavirus team. Hi, guys. Hi, Ryan. Hey. Let's start with the new restrictions. These are for counties that meet some specific benchmarks. John, what are they? Well, there are three criteria, high levels of transmission, hospitalizations, and positivity rates. This week, the governor estimated that about 1 in 110 people is contagious with coronavirus. Counties going to new restrictions have a higher rate than that. For example, in Adams County, 1 in 58 people is currently contagious. In Denver, it's 1 in 64. What are the restrictions? Well, most indoor activities are prohibited or strictly limited, and outdoor activities are encouraged as an alternative. The limits on capacity are significant. Here's some specifics. Restaurants, uh, indoor dining is closed. Outdoor or open-air dining is only with groups of someone's uh, own household. For offices, it's a 10% capacity, and, of course, remote work is strongly uh, encouraged. Uh, Critical and non-critical retail is supposed to be at 50 percent capacity with increased curbside pickup and delivery. There's dedicated hours for seniors and at-risk folks. That's encouraged. Um, As far as places of worship, we have for indoors, that's limited to 25 percent of capacity or 50 people at indoor functions. And then, of course, schools are strongly encouraged to be going to remote learning, especially for the older children. Andrea, let's talk about how Colorado got here. I mean, can you speak to where things fell short? 
The number of people with COVID-19 has just kept going up and up. And the positivity rate, that's the number of positive tests out of all the tests done, it's really high. It's hovering just above 13%. State officials want that rate to be under 5%. And you remember early on when schools started opening up, CU Boulder had an outbreak. And at the time, that was the state's major concern. Since then, the virus is a big problem all over, and it's just continued to spread throughout the community. I always like to check in with CPR investigative editor Chuck Murphy because he's just so good at tracking these numbers. And Chuck characterizes the situation right now as scary and hopeful. Scary and hopeful. Okay. Uh, I guess the bad news first. Uh, On the scary front is the death count. Three days in November have now had more than 30 deaths from COVID-19. On November 9th, there were 34 deaths just on that one day. That's the most since May 1st. Another scary thing has to do with the number of people hospitalized for confirmed and suspected cases of COVID. That number has more than doubled since the end of October. There were 788 people hospitalized back then. Now there are 1,645, and in just the past three days, hospitals in the state have added 221 patients. And what is the encouraging thing about this moment? Uh, On the hopeful front, I told you the positivity rate was around 13%. But the good news is that that rate has been declining for several days in a row this week. That's the first time that's happened since late September. It's way too soon to say the curve's flattening, but it's better than nothing. We should note that the new highest alert level is purple. So it's beyond red, which can be confusing. John, explain this. That's right. Uh, Purple is for counties where hospital capacity is at extreme risk of being overrun, and it would mean certain activities are closed or severely restricted. So businesses would have to significantly curtail in-person functions, and people would be told to stay at home except for necessary activities. Uh, And we should note there are no counties in Colorado that have reached that purple level yet. Right. What we're talking about are the new red restrictions for counties today and into the weekend. Why not stop at red, John? Why add the purple category? Like, it it was just, this just an addition to avoid a full shutdown? You know, it seems like that's the case, and we're hearing a lot of questions about that and a lot of confusion about it, and and that is what some critics are saying. But the governor has said that nationally, regionally, and in Colorado, efforts to hold off the virus have proven insufficient. He said that basically what uh, we're doing isn't working. And this change, I think, spotlights the needle that Governor Polis and other top leaders are trying to thread. As Andrea was just describing, hospitals are on the verge of a crisis, the kind of crisis we haven't seen in decades, maybe since the last pandemic a century ago. And without much hope for federal relief, Businesses and workers and families are facing their own financial crisis, and the economic consequences of a stay-at-home order are severe. So I think uh, the governor and public health officials are trying to wake people up and at the same time avoid these stay-at-home orders, which are so tough. Yeah, and a tough balance for sure. So I understand that hospitals are supposed to submit a surge plan today to the state uh, with what they think they can handle from here on out. What, What do we know about that? 
So the surge plan includes what hospitals can do to increase bed capacity by at least 50 percent and provide staffing and medical equipment needed to go along with the beds. Uh, They've developed strategies to increase the number of ICU beds by transitioning medical and surgical beds to ICU beds Mm -hmm. if needed. And of course, ICU, that's the top level of care. Uh, most severe, uh, sickest patients get ICU care. Uh, they, they've been developing detailed staffing plans uh, to provide adequate care for those beds. Uh, they've also got uh, uh, elective procedures that they're working on, non-scheduled surgeries, and these need to be actively managed, reduced, or delayed uh, if, if possible if there is a surge of these COVID-19 uh, infections. So a lot of moving parts. Hospitals have some flexibility. That That's what they say they're planning for. Well, are they ready? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I think the best way to think about this is that, think about a wave, right? I think they would say they're ready for a big wave. They've been planning for months. They've been getting better at treating pl- patients. They've got a lot of PPE uh, stocked up. But if the cases are so, there's so many cases that it's like a tsunami, that's where things get scary. That's where things get tough. And we're hearing stories like this from all over the country, North Dakota, where the governor has asked for uh, healthcare workers to work while sick with COVID. Uh, we've heard this from El Paso, which was uh, featured on uh, Morning Edition from NPR today, where uh, they're being overrun and, and patients are being sent to other hospitals. So it's all a matter of being prepared for how big. Big the wave is. And if we have a tsunami, that's bad. Andrea, we've been getting a lot of questions from listeners, and many of them have to do with social gatherings. Like, how does this impact Thanksgiving with family members? The clear message from the state is that if people don't live in your household, you shouldn't have them over for Thanksgiving. And if the county you live in is classified as red, that kind of gathering is banned. Uh, But you won't be arrested if people show up at your house. Okay. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and two members of our health team, our COVID-19 coverage team, join us, Andrea Dukakis and John Daly. Uh, We are talking about the fact that many populated counties in Colorado are going to the red alert for COVID-19 today and into the weekend. John, you've also been checking into holiday travel through DIA. What have you heard there? Well, uh, travelers that we've talked to describe crowds and then often not a lot of social distancing. The mask wearing seems to be pretty good, but the social distancing or an enforcement of that is not so great. Here's what one passenger told me she saw at the concourse after a stop at DIA. The compliance with the spacing was terrible. There was no compliance. Every line for the McDonald's and every line for Panda Express or any kind of a food line or even getting onto the airplane, it was, I'd say, one foot apart. That was Susie Fracona, a retired nurse who lives in Arizona. And we heard similar tales from other passengers about a lot of crowding on the train. And remember, if you take the train, you still have to go through Uh, the construction area, and Mm. then baggage. It can be pretty congested there, kind of a bottleneck. One doctor who came down with COVID uh, described to us that uh, he thought it was like a super spreader event. Um, We know that the Sunday before and the Sunday after Thanksgiving Day are projected to be the busiest days with around 50,000 people projected to go through the checkpoints on the 29th of November, and the airport is saying that's expected to be the busiest day since mid-March. Public health officials say the spread is so great they're advising not to travel because of some of the things we were just talking about. 
Andrea, a lot of attention on vaccines lately with the news of two promising ones. What have you learned about how they would roll out in Colorado. Right. I've been checking in with doctors about the two new vaccines that do show promise, one from Pfizer and one from Moderna. There's a lot of excitement, but a lot of caution, too. Um, For one, they haven't been approved yet for distribution. Governor Jared Polis is optimistic. He says he expects to see the first batch of vaccines in December and early January. And who would be eligible for those first batches? Well, understandably, the state calls for healthcare workers to be the first in line. That includes those who work in assisted living facilities. And that's where there have been a lot of outbreaks lately in the state. First responders like police and firefighters would be next. Then the plan is to vaccinate residents of nursing homes and long-term care facilities, followed by people living in close quarters like prisons and shelters for the homeless. And then who gets it next? Next to people who do essential work at places like grocery stores. And then Coloradans over 65 and those with pre-existing conditions the final tier would be the general public. That tiered approach is part of the state's extensive plan for distributing the vaccine, but there are a lot of moving targets here. What do officials say are their biggest concerns? I think it's just that there are so many unknowns right now about the timeline and the quantity of vaccine that will be sent to Colorado. I talked to Dr. Eric France the other day. He's the chief medical officer for the Colorado Department of Health and Environment. How do you plan when you don't know how many doses you're actually going to get? Am I going to get so few doses that I'm going to have to actually triage within the first tier, which is hospital workers? Can I only give it to certain types of hospital workers? Will I be so limited that I can only give it in the places with the biggest volumes of COVID cases? Or will I have plenty of doses and the challenge of having too much vaccine arriving and not quite ready to give it out to so many people because we didn't think so much was coming. Dr. France says this this means the state has to be flexible and pretty much at the ready for anything. There's the additional issue that the Pfizer vaccine needs to be stored at ultra cold temperatures. State officials say several locations across the state already have the special freezers that are needed. The state has also purchased more of them. But for security reasons, officials won't say where those ultra cold freezers are. Vaccine freezers. The details of this pandemic are fascinating. I guess I will be especially thankful this year, guys, to those who have been researching vaccines. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Here's John Daly and Andrea Dukakis on our COVID reporting team. They joined us as more than a dozen counties move to this red status. That list will grow Sunday as several more counties are added. Check your local listings, as they say. For counties moving to red, indoor dining is off limits. Takeout is still encouraged. So is outdoor dining if you don't mix households. It's a tough development for the hospitality industry, which has already been decimated by the pandemic. Catherine Clements works at a chain restaurant in Arapahoe County. She says she's lost work hours to the shutdowns and doesn't know how she'll pay her bills beyond the next month or two. It's terrifying. Because it does not matter what I do 
or how hard I try or how hard I work or who I talk to or who I call. These things are completely out of my control. And for most people, not having control over a situation gives them anxiety. But this is my entire life. This is my house and my car and my food. And I can't do anything but hope that other people understand the seriousness of the situation I and millions of other people are in. Many restaurant owners are in hot water as well. Danette Garlis owns Elaine's Place, which serves Greek food in Fort Morgan. Morgan County is another moving into the red zone today. Danette, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. You've spent your life in the restaurant business, I understand. Uh, first off, what's the most popular dish on the menu, and who is Elaine? Uh, the most popular dish, I believe... Well, it's one or two. It's the original Greek salad, which is all your fresh vegetables tossed in a Greek dressing with the feta cheese and olives. And the other one is our lamb chops. Those two are the most popular items on our menu. Okay, I want the lamb chops now. You've uh, whetted my appetite. And and who is Elaine? Who is the restaurant named for? The restaurant was named after our mother. She passed away early with cancer. She always wanted to own a restaurant, so... We gave it to her. Oh, it's a lovely sentiment. But I understand it's been difficult lately. And because of COVID restrictions, you've had to reduce the hours for some of your staff. I understand that this next round might take you out of business altogether. Talk me through that. Yeah, if if it, uh, it might, because uh, December is one of our biggest months here. And December usually carries us over through January, which is really a slow month for every restaurant. And then, you know, into February until the big Valentine's Day holiday. So with the loss of the Christmas parties that we usually are full every weekend, Mm. you know, that's a big loss of income for us. You know, so, yeah, we'll see. If the good Lord wants us to stay, he'll figure it out. That's all I can say. I don't know what else to say. Do you find yourself praying about this? Uh, Every day. (laughs) Yeah, every day I talk to the Lord and say, let's see what we can do. Let's, you know, put me where you're supposed to put me. Just don't wait too long. (laughs) Don't wait too long. Your restaurant, (laughs) I think it's on a municipal golf course. And so do you have outdoor seating options? It's next to the golf course. And we do have, you know, a two-table uh, outside setting, but, you know, um, we never really used it in the wintertime, so we had no real reason to vamp it for winter setting. And so really our, our outside seating is probably not going to help us too much because, you know, people don't want to sit out in the cold and eat, so... Yeah, it's a tough balance for sure. Well, for a broader perspective, I'd like to invite into our conversation the CEO of the Colorado Restaurant Association, Sonia Riggs. Hi, Sonia. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, Let's talk through this issue of, like, winterizing restaurants. I mean, that's uh, clearly a challenge for Danette. Uh, what, What are you seeing right now about restaurants' ability to turn their outdoor seating into something that's year round? Well, we've, we got, have gotten word that about half of uh, restaurants are looking at expanding outdoor dining in some way. It, it 
this was a significant revenue generator for restaurants over the summer months. Um, summer patio expansion programs added an average of 32% capacity for restaurants that took advantage of it. And on restaurants report that on average, 54% of their summer revenue came from their patios. So I think it's going to be a really important thing for restaurants to be able to bring in some sort of revenue over the winter. Uh, but that's expensive. I mean, winterizing, whatever that entails, if it's those like geodesic domes or if it's heating systems, permanent or mobile, th- th- those aren't cheap. They're not. In fact, our last survey, uh, restaurants said that it will cost on average a little bit over $17,000 to winterize their patios. So how important has limited indoor dining been to restaurants' survival? And what does it mean you know, to lose that in the counties going red today and this weekend? It's well, first of all, it's devastating. The shutdowns are are going to be adding a lot of strain to this industry that's already been struggling for eight months. Um, restaurants said if if they were to shut down for indoor dining, about twenty five percent will be considered closing permanently within a month. And almost sixty percent said they'll consider closing in less than three months. So this is a this is a really big blow. Steven Sasson works at Snooze, which is a local brunch chain with a location in Westminster. And he says he took that job because he was already tied on cash, needed a bit more income. Now he's facing the possibility of a layoff. I work as a a buster and a host. And if we don't have inside seating, neither of those job descriptions are all that useful. So more than likely, um, either my hours are going to get super, super reduced or they're going to let a whole bunch of people go. Given how they handled the first kind of shutdown stuff, it's probably going to be letting uh, a lot of people go. I want to be clear that both Stassen and the worker we heard from earlier, Catherine Clements, they both understand the new restrictions, but they're hurting and they need help. Uh, I wonder for you, Danette, do you understand the decisions that your county has made? Well, yes and no. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I understand that this is a, a very serious thing that's going on. But I also believe that a lot of the people have learned that, you know, don't go out sick and, you know, wash your hands. Those are the two important things in, you know, getting all of this, this pandemic under control. So, you know... If a customer comes in and they're hacking and coughing and, you know, oh, I don't feel good, we'll send them away. But if they're a customer that comes in, I I don't know. I, I, I don't understand it. I just, I, I truly don't understand it. Yeah, it sounds like something that you struggle with. Of course, one thing we know about COVID-19 is that there is the possibility of transmission if you are asymptomatic. So that adds yet another um, wrench to this. Uh, I'm going to have you both stick around into the next half hour uh, because I'd like to continue this conversation, talk uh, maybe a bit about your workers. But I wonder briefly before we take a break uh, in about a minute or so, Danette, what, what would you miss most about the restaurant business if this doesn't work out? Um, well, I think most on the top of the list is with my business being here, I've always been able to help my family. You know, if they needed extra money, I could bring them in, work them. They'd have the extra money they needed. You know, that's probably going to be the hardest for me because I've always been somewhat of a caretaker. The provider. So, yeah. 
Sonia, uh, we know people are hurting in the restaurant industry. Uh, Beyond unemployment, even, they need support. Is there help on the horizon with this special session, which we now know will start November 30th? Is there help on the horizon, Sonia, from Congress? Well, I certainly hope so. I, I I appreciate the fact that we the state is going to be meeting about some type of support for this industry over their special session. Unfortunately, it's not going to be enough. It's it's definitely a step in the right direction. We desperately need help from the federal level in a significant way. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, one of the things that that you may have been hearing about is the 120 billion dollar Restaurants Act that has been. Can, there's been a version in the House and another version in the Senate. It's going to take something like that to help this industry survive. Why do you think it hasn't passed thus far? I mean, the stories of, I think of restaurants hard hit have been so well uh, told. You know, there's the political. Uh, arena that we're in right now, unfortunately. And I, I think that it's going to be crucial that folks set aside their differences and and come up with a way to help this industry. Danette, uh, talk to me about your workers. You said before the break that one thing that gives you a great amount of pride is being able to help your family. Um, h- how have your workers been? Well, that, that's a sad thing, too, because most of my workers have been with me since we opened in... Uh, 2006 here. So, you know, um, I'm not sure how, you know, one of the gals, Andrea, she's, you know, she's just a young, very responsible uh, young lady. <clears throat> she's, I've cut her back to where she's already, you know, she's at two days a week. So I don't know how it's going to work again. I just brought her back here a couple of weeks or about a month ago because I had to lay her off. And then, and now it looks like I may have to do it again, you know, unless, unless I can figure out a way to do the delivery thing, you know, which is going to, that's expenses because I have to insure them and mm. use all the, you know, get all the stuff you prop you, that the health department requires for you to use in order to deliver. And what about takeout? I mean, have you, have you done a takeout business at Elaine's place? Yeah, uh, we've, in fact, the last uh, deal we had, our pickup was, our our, uh, pickup was really pretty good, actually. We were really surprised at how many people (laughs) missed us. (laughs) So, so, uh, yeah, it it was good, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as good as filling up the dining room or filling up the lounge or having a party upstairs, you know. No. We kept our head above water. That's about it. And that really is the predicament, Sonia Riggs, for so many restaurants right now. I mean, I don't even know if breaking even is is the right word. Well, restaurants are telling us they need to be at uh, 75% capacity on average to survive a midterm. So they're really trying to be creative as they as creative as, as they can and try to pivot and bring in additional revenue. But these capacity restrictions are are very, very challenging. And yet we know, uh, according to the state epidemiologist, that restaurants have been a source of some transmission. I gather you're mindful of that, too, in just the last few seconds here, Sonia. Well, let me just tell you, I looked at the state's own data just last night, and according to them, only 2% of the cases come from restaurants. Uh, More than 
Two and a half times come from K through 12 schools, 5%, 24% from colleges, 29% from prisons. So I, I just don't see that the data adds up that restaurants are where this is coming from. I want to thank you both for your perspectives, and I wish you the best. Thanks, Danette. Oh, no, thank you very much. And Sonia, I appreciate your time once again. Thank you. Sonia Riggs leads the Colorado Restaurant Association. Danette Garlis is the owner of Elaine's Place. It's a Greek restaurant in Fort Morgan. It was yet another sign of how political the pandemic had become. Douglas County was threatening to pull out of the Tri-County Health Department after the imposition of a mask mandate earlier this summer. Douglas County is both populated and conservative. President Trump won there this year by about seven percentage points. But Dugco's withdrawal from the regional health department didn't happen. So what's the deal? Elliot Wensler has been covering this for Colorado Community Media. And thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Ryan. You've been covering this dispute around Tri-County Health every step of the way. Uh, The latest development is that Douglas County formally rescinded its notice last week to withdraw from Tri-County Health. Why the change of heart? This decision came after months of negotiations between these two parties. It ended up with Tri-County's Board of Health voting back on November 6th to actually enact a new policy regarding how they're going to implement countywide health orders going forward. So that new policy is going to give elected officials more power in their public health decisions made by Tri-County Health Department. So specifically, elected officials from each of the three counties, including Adams and Arapahoe, they're going to be consulted from now on before those orders are put in place. They're also going to be given an opportunity to opt out of any order that Tri-County hands down. And then if an emergency order is put in place, they uh, will be consulted as soon as possible. Fascinating. So the idea here is that the elected folks retain just a bit more authority, a bit more control uh, That's right. Than the public health officials do. Uh, I also just want to note that now that the county has rescinded its notice to withdraw, they will stay with Tri-County Health until at least the end of 2022 instead of leaving in July of 2021, which was the plan under their letter to withdraw. What has the reaction been to this agreement that gives the counties and elected officials more uh, autonomy, I guess? Well, it seems that pretty much everyone involved in these negotiations is relieved to be able to close the book on this, at least for now. Dr. John Douglas, who's the executive director of Tri-County, has said that this was a big distraction for his staff. Mm. You know, they had to spend a lot of time to see if they could prevent this divorce. And of course, all of this was happening in the middle of a pandemic. County commissioners have also released statements thanking Dr. Douglas for all of his work and his department's work in finding this compromise. They say that this really addresses all of their primary concerns about increasing local control, collaborating, and communicating with that public health department. This agreement came after months of negotiating, as you said. Uh, Commissioners had voted back in July to leave Tri-County, saying that they'd create their own agency instead. And that was a day after Tri-County's board imposed a mask mandate. Uh, The commissioners were nebulous, though, about their reasoning for wanting to withdraw. 
Yes. So back in July, uh, when they sent their intent to withdraw, commissioners released statements about how their decision to leave the health department was based on the fact that their county seemed to be doing fine without a mask mandate. They also expressed doubts about the efficacy and enforceability of a mask mandate. But since then, commissioners have started to say that their reasoning was actually not about masks at all. And instead, it was really more about their desire for local control. Hmm. They've made it very clear that uh, through these negotiations, they want to get to a place where Adams and Arapahoe counties no longer have an impact on what happens to Douglas County. What have we learned from the meetings where these decisions have taken place? What insight have you gotten? Yeah, in the Douglas County commissioner meetings, we've learned a lot more about why this is so important to the commissioners there. In the meeting where commissioners reviewed the new policy change proposed by Tri-County, Commissioner Laura Thomas said that what she really liked about the proposal was, frankly, that it gave elected officials a role in public health decisions, and it allowed them to consider not only public health, but also people's livelihoods and the local economy. We've also learned what some residents think about this decision. In a meeting just after the commissioners voted to leave, multiple residents spoke up in opposition to the decision, saying they were concerned about the costs and the impact it could have on the pandemic. And what have you learned from the Tri-County Board of Health meetings? Right. So in those meetings, particularly the one where the department approved this new policy, we got to hear more from the other counties affected by this about how they're feeling about these changes. For instance, here's Julie Mullica, a Board of Health member who represents Adams County just before Tri-County voted on this new agreement. I have to say how disappointed I am that we are where we are today. This policy change is completely unnecessary and is only before us today because Douglas County Commissioners have threatened to dissolve their relationship with Tri-County Health Department. Their actions are completely irresponsible, given that we are facing the most crucial public health crisis in the country. Julie Mullica there from North Glen. Elliot, I'm curious how this debate about withdrawing from the Tri-County Health Department played out in the election for Douglas County Commissioners that happened. Right. It was definitely a big part of the county commissioner elections, and there were two of those three seats up this year. So uh, instead of debating about longstanding issues like transportation, growth, school safety, gun control, the commissioner hopefuls ended up sparring over mask mandates instead and personal liberty and whether or not it was the right time for the county to create its own health department. And Republicans and Democrats both focused on this issue in their campaigns. Uh, the Democrats really criticized the move as anti-science and Republicans touted the decision, though, uh, as one that prioritized local control. So it definitely had a big impact on campaigning. It's definitely hard to say how much of an impact it actually had on the results. Mm. Because following that election, the political makeup of the county board is largely the same. There's only one new commissioner. And during his campaign, he was very vocal about his views that Douglas County should make its own health department. Uh, he hasn't been involved in these latest developments, though. But Elliot, thanks for being with us. I know you'll continue to monitor how Douglas County feels about its relationship with Tri-County Health. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Reporter Elliot Wenzler of Colorado Community Media. She focuses on Douglas County, which incidentally moves to red today. (music) 
Life has been a whirlwind for teacher Renee Sutton and her third graders in room 132. She had just returned to her Westminster classroom after a month of family leave, only to find they were shifting to remote learning. Today, CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine has the latest from her special series following one classroom in the pandemic. Renee Sutton walked back into her classroom to posters welcoming her back. But that very night, the district announced it was going remote for two weeks. Here's Kimberly. I was kind of uh, scared because we only got to see Miss Sutton for three days, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I hadn't seen Room 132 in over a month. There were some changes. Justin just turned nine and... I got my hair curled. It took three hours. I asked them about the other big change coming up. I'd heard this rumor that kids don't particularly like remote learning. No. Um, when Valentina told me, I literally dragged my backpack all the way to line. <laughs> That's pretty much what all the kids think. But they're also trying to look at the positive side. Here's Jordan followed by Amaya. Because if we don't go remote, we have a bigger chance of getting COVID. And plus, we got to wear this for eight hours if we stay here. Yeah. She's pointing to her mask. The kids despise the masks. They're happy to take a break from them. Hey, Azrael, I need you to mute yourself. It's 9 a.m., just over a week into remote learning. What do you got, Jordan? A Broncos? The kids are in sports team shirts. Tomorrow is hat day. Some kids are finishing up breakfast. They look tired, way more than they do in school. My mom is leaving the work soon, so I'm not going to be on the meeting for long. Okay. Right off the bat, eight-year-old Sebastian tells Sutton he can't be in class because his mom has to go clean houses. Another student, Monsi, says she had to go to the store with her mom yesterday, but she handed in her work later. I understand that your families, you guys have things going, okay? And I'm here to help you and work with you. We already agreed. We learn so much more when we're in school. But we also don't want to have two weeks of no learning at all. The kids start the day in breakout rooms and ask each other how remote learning is going. Okay, Monty, you start. How is remote learning? Bad, obviously. Because every time um, I'm done with my remote learning, my eyes burn. Monsi's a diligent student. She tells Sutton later her eyes hurt so bad she had to use eye drops. Sutton encourages her to step away and take breaks. Amaya says she likes remote better. I don't like being around people. I'm a little skeptical. These normally attentive kids, it's so hard for them to focus online. The boys especially become enamored with their images, putting their mouths up to the camera. One wanders around the house with his laptop, repeatedly tapping the microphone, breathing. Ooh, careful, guys. Do me a favor and mute yourself until you're going to talk. It's vocabulary time. What I want you guys to turn to page 144. What does immigrate mean? What do you think, Alejandra? Travel from a country to another country. They do similes. The waves were as big as mountains. In this literacy class, they even do breakout rooms. What is another word for an opportunity? A chance. Then they break for a couple of hours to independently complete tons of assignments. At 12.30, when they regroup, the kids look more refreshed. Sutton checks in on what they ate for lunch. I had a corn dog, a banana, and... One kid says they had three Kit Kats. 
another eggs, or they weren't hungry. I only had four cups of water. Then, in math, the third graders take up the concept of distributive property. You can use a multiplication table to help you find patterns. At the end of the lesson, Sutton flips to the online page that shows her how many students have done their math homework. I only have eight out of 13 have finished, 11 out of 14, eight out of 14. There's a lot of people that have not finished their work from last week. Academics aside, you can tell the kids yearn for connection. They say random things, like Amaya suddenly says there's a bird on her balcony. Um, Let's see what's your question, hun. They just want to share little bits of their lives. Um, I'm excited because in seven days, my baby sister is going to be four months. The one screen image I can't get out of my head is one boy who all you can see is his fist raised. He's squiggling on the floor. He has attention deficit problems, and in person, Sutton has really worked to help him focus. I look at that lonely fist on the screen, and it's like he's saying, hey, you, adults, don't forget about us, the kids, and how hard this remote learning is. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. The kids in Room 132 were supposed to go back to in-person learning this week, but that was delayed because of the new guidance. We'll be right back with ideas for Thanksgiving dishes that were tested in the ranch kitchens of Montrose. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Benta Berklin from the CPR Newsroom. For this week's bonus episode of Purplish, we talked to two of Colorado's top political strategists, Democrat Craig Hughes. Where the Republican Party goes now will be very interesting to see if we are indeed a blue state. And Republican Josh Penry. Voters in Colorado are still kind of at their core a pretty discerning, mavericky lot. Purplish, the Colorado politics podcast from CPR News. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The pandemic may mean adjusting your Thanksgiving traditions. So why not see this as an opportunity to try out some new dishes? In the latest installment of our vintage cookbook series, The Kitchen Shelf, we have two sides you might consider, courtesy of Kelly McGuire, who lives in Grand Junction. And what cookbook have you brought for us? I have brought the favorite ranch recipes of the Montrose County Cowbells. The Montrose County Cowbells, that's spelled B-E-L-L-E-S. This cookbook was put together by a group of ranch ladies in 1975. It was my grandmother's cookbook, and she lived in Montrose. But the cool thing about this cookbook is it has hand-drawn brands of a bunch of different ranches and who owns these brands. Tell us about your grandma. Um, My grandmother, her name was Joanne McGurr, and she was very involved in the community in Montrose and Olathe. I can still remember the house she lived in in Olathe. You can drive by on the highway and see it from the highway. Oh, so you're telling me that when I drive on 50 from Grand Mm -hmm. Junction, to Olathe, to Montrose, I would be able to see her house. Yes. I love that drive. I do too. You know, a lot of people, when they're not from here, think it's boring, but I just, I think the desert is a beautiful place. So. Well, and you're on the backside of the Mesa. Yeah. So is this a cookbook that you use with any frequency? Favorite ranch recipes of Montrose County cowbells? 
you know, this would be the probably third time I dug out this cookbook. <laughs> so we asked you to dig it out for Thanksgiving. Yes. What did you pick out for us? I chose a very classic, what I would consider fluff salad recipe that my grandma would make and probably has made. It's cranberry salad. And fluff means there's marshmallows? There's marshmallows and whipped cream. That sounds (laughs) of an era. Maybe we could put it that way. (laughs) Um, I have eaten many fluffs in my lifetime. (laughs) But this one is appropriately themed for Thanksgiving because it's cranberry-based. What else have you chosen? And there's a recipe called the Bee Party Puffs, and it is an appetizer. And I thought this was appropriate because it has ground beef in it, and it's a pretty fun, easy recipe to make with family. All right. Before we dive into these recipes, would you read from, like, the introduction? So in the first, very first page, there's an introduction. It says, what is a rancher? Ranchers are usually found where there is cattle feeding, dehorning, branding, trading, roping, and doctoring. Bankers hate to see them coming. Little boys admire them. The Secretary of Agriculture confuses them. City people visit and don't understand them. Meals wait on them. Other ranchers compete with them. Barbed wire cuts them. Television glorifies them. But nothing discourages them. Oh, wow. Was it bankers run from them? Bankers run from them. (laughs) Well, let's jump into this cranberry fluff salad. Uh, You've made it. What are some of the ingredients? And talk about the flavor. There are five ingredients. Cranberries, whole fresh cranberries. There is an orange. And there are two apples, two cups of marshmallows, and a whole cup of cream. And then you whip it. Uh, Oh, and sugar. And sugar. Well, whatever sugar is not already in everything you mentioned, of course. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of a fruit so, salad as well. I mean, it's not all bad for you. It is not all bad for you. So I will say uh, this has been refrigerated as it requests in the recipe. Um, you refrigerate it overnight without the cream and marshmallows first. And then it says to refrigerate it for several hours. So I just did it overnight again after you add the marshmallows and the whipped cream. You know, when I've made something close to this, which is the Watergate salad, that's a pistachio fluff salad, it's really nice to let it sit because the flavors do actually start to mingle really well. Yeah. Some people cringe at these salads, and I have in the past, but I'm excited to taste this salad because unlike some fluff salads, there's actually kind of chunks of fruit in here. The recipe says to grind it, but I just put it in my uh, food processor and pulsed it until they were little chunks. Okay, you're going to try this. I'm watching you on video now with a spoon that is kind of hovering over your camera. Give it a try. (laughs) All right. How is it? It's good. It is not too sweet. Oh, good. Good. I was wondering (laughs) if it would be like cloying. You know, I like the flavor of the orange in it. It always goes well with cranberries. But the surprising thing is the apple, it gives it a little bit of a different texture. 
the cranberries are a little crunchy, the orange is soft, and then the apples just have that little bit of crunch to them that helps with the soft marshmallows and the soft cream. So that's our first side for Thanksgiving from this <laughs> Montrose cookbook. Lead us to our second one. You know, this is a half what I would consider a halfway homemade recipe. <laughs> um, the The filling is really simple, easy to put together ground beef, dried onion soup mix, and uh, cheddar cheese, and that's it. That's in a, a puff pastry or? In crescent roll dough. Like <laughs> like that you could hit against the counter and pop open. Yep. <laughs> the recipe calls for three cans of crescent roll dough, but I made a third because it's just me and my husband, and that's 48 puffs. I'm not sure we could eat 48 puffs. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you have those there to try? No, we ate them off. Are you? T- <laughs> <laughs> what a lack of patience! I'm not sure they would reheat very well. <laughs> I will tell you, they are very good. They are like little cheeseburgers, and I'm pretty sure any kid would a be able to make them and b really love them. So some maybe non-traditional or less than traditional sides for Thanksgiving. When you make recipes from this book, do you think of your grandmother? You know, I really do. This side would be something we would make together. We we made stuff like this when I was a kid a lot. It'd be a great appetizer recipe for any... And in fact, the recipe says, good anytime. <laughs> so... <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us, for sharing this, and for making food. Mm-hmm. The Texans are gathered up in Colorado. Kelly McGuire of Grand Junction made us two dishes from the Montrose County Cowbells. Find the recipes for the cranberry fluff salad and the beef puffs at CPR.org. And if you have a delicious old Colorado cookbook to share, snap a picture of the cover and email it to coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. You might just land on our kitchen shelf. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks to Alexandra McMahon and Shane Rumsey. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Belly store.